Preston holding flat on the boards in front of the 200. Dr. Grayson, Sedestin are challenging and better loosen up on the extreme outside. Sedestin and Benelux have come away. They're fighting it out. Better loosen up on the extreme outside is roaring clear and better loosen up wins the Sajano. Sedestin second. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. There have been only six editions of the Everest, but the trivia buffs are already compiling records. For instance, Yes, Yes, Yes is the only end tyre to win so far. A total of 15 spots have been filled by mares, with not a single place-getter among them. Tulip and Hort Brion Her have been the best of the female performers, both finishing fifth in their respective years. Four mares ran in the first Everest, while three contested two later editions. Peter Snowden and Chris share training honours with two wins each, while Karen McAvoy dominates the jockeys. Not only has he ridden three of the six Everest winners, he's also the only jockey to have ridden in every one of them. Brendan Abdullah, Hugh Bowman and Tim Clark have been around in five, James McDonald, Tommy Berry and Nashra Willer in four each. Rachel King, who's been unplaced twice, is the only female jockey to ride in the race. Amazingly, Damien Oliver has had only one Everest ride. The great Ty England rode in the first two editions, finishing second on Trapeze Artist in 2018. Several horses competed more than once. Nature Strip is the top scorer with four attempts. Redzel, Santa Ana Lane, Trekking and Eduardo had three cracks at the big race, while Brave Smash Gitra and In Her Time competed twice. Three of the six Everests have been run on rain-affected tracks. Yes, 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 got a good three in 2019 and established a race and track record of 17.32. Only two overseas horses have arrived on the eve of the race. US Navy flag and 10 sovereigns from the O'Brien yard and both finish well back. The youngest trainer to win the Everest is Clayton Douglas, who was just 27 when Giga Kick was successful last year. Year, the oldest is Les Bridge, who was 83 when Classic Legend won in 2020. That's a heck of a lot of trivia after just six years. How will it be in another six? Training partnerships are being formalised at the rate of knots all over Australia. In most cases, they're the result of horse numbers far too large for any one person to manage and coordinate. You won't find a more harmonious duo than the Kembla Grange father and son combination of Robert and Luke Price, both universally well-liked and both outstanding professional horsemen. The Prices have 50 in work, a small percentage of some of the teams being managed by the much bigger racing stables around Australia. The restricted numbers allow Robert and Luke to run a very tight ship and to stay across the most minor of details. Their talents were showcased by the deeds of the ill-fated Count de Rupee, winner of seven races with eight placings for $2.6 million. He went very close to winning the 2021 Golden Eagle and got his consolation in the gong two weeks later. Robert Price had to abandon his dream of becoming a jockey when weight caught up after a few trial rides, he got a job as a bricklayer, but was soon training a couple of horses before work. Like his father, Luke Price also wanted to be a jockey, 
He rode a hundred and ten winners, but was forced to quit the saddle when his weight got out of hand. They trained individually for a while before the partnership began, a partnership which has yielded about 250 winners and a healthy number of black-type racers. Luke lives within a stone's throw of the stables. Robert lives in the historic township of Berry, only half an hour away. From the time they link up in the wee small hours, the Price Stable runs like a well-oiled machine. I've got the elder statesman on the line for a long overdue chat. Rob Price, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, John. So, Rob, you're at the Kembla Stables every day now, but there was a time when you were operating from a lovely property, Turpentine Park at Camberwarra. What were you doing there? Yeah, look, we trained there successfully for quite a few years, um, a property that I developed for the Dickerson family. It was a beautiful um, facility, um, but as you know, time goes on and councils change um, the landscape of the community and they've decided to zone that residential. Mm. So it's um, now, you know, formed to be residential for housing. But um, like I said, we trained there for 25 years, trained a lot of winners out of there. Yeah, it enjoyed was, it. It was a different. It was a different type of training. You know, we could go to the beach in the middle of the day, and yeah, yeah everything we wanted was there. We had a great swimming hole, gallop track, and um, and mm. a lovely half mile trot canter track there. You'd sometimes whisk one of the horses uh, from Kembla down to the property for a week if you felt that horse needed a pickup. We do. We do that quite regularly, actually. And um, even though we're going to lose the property, we've got the access to Bellevue next door now. And um, mm. I've already coordinated with uh, with Bellevue there to um, have a couple of little fresh paddocks for that for that sort of thing to happen. Mm. You're a dyed-in-the-wool south coaster, Robert. You grew up there and you've yep. got no intention of leaving. No, John, my wife wouldn't want to leave Barry for quits, you know. She loves it here. She's, <laughs> yeah. she's a Diana, Diana well, Barryite for sure. Yes. I think it's fair to say you and Luke are absolutely obsessed with the horses and you're totally devoted to the racing industry. You turned 63 recently and retirement to you is a dirty word. Oh, look, John, I've always enjoyed working. Look. Um, it's probably we don't get to get away much, but um, it's sort of been the um, centre point of my life, that's for sure. Right at the moment, all Kembla trainers are under the pump because of ongoing track uh, refurbishments. The training tracks are closing at 7.45 to allow work to begin on a couple of larger projects. So it's pretty hectic for a few hours, Monday to Saturday. Yeah, it is, John. It's extremely hectic, but, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel and it gives you the in, little lift and enthusiasm to get the work done. Mm. It's got, you've got to be like clockwork. You know, we you don't need many things to go wrong. If a rider has a tumble or something, the, the track's mm. closed for 15 minutes. It's um, just definitely not ideal. Mm. I mean, these days we have things like, you know, we've got a good swimming hole up there and we've, um, we've got treadmills. Nearly all the trainers have got their own treadmills, so we're sort of ready for it. But um, so far, so good. I've just come out of a trainer's meeting this morning you know, in regards to our progress and um, yeah, things are you know, hopping along quite fast there. And what are they doing, Rob? What are the refurbishments? 
Yeah, well, um, they're putting in a new bee grass at the moment, which is a pretty big job because they're going to do something similar to Newcastle. Mm. Hopefully, it, it ends up a little bit better than Newcastle, and the, and you know the powers to be give the tracker a little bit longer so it um, it can settle and before they race on it. But it's going to be a racing surface, and it's going to be something that's going to be established so they can move race meetings onto it while they redo the course proper so um look Kimbler's a beautiful spot john like it's it's an hour and a half away from all the major city tracks it's only a little pop up the highway you know like even getting to newcastle why on gosh with them sort of places it's it's just geography makes it you know a a pick of provincial tracks i think Mm. last season was a good one for you and luke on two counts you won more races on the new south wales trainers premiership than any other Kembla trainer, and naturally, you captured the Kembla Grange Premiership. That was a nice little double. It was, yeah. We we're pretty happy about that. I think Luke had that goal in the back of his mind, you know, two years ago, and it took us two years to to do that. And we're going to hopefully back it up again this year. We've got a, a lovely team of three year olds coming through, and it's mm-hmm. a great place to kick young horses off Kembla Grange, as you know, history's proven. A lot of Group One horses have won their maidens at Kembla Grange. Mm. Private steer was one. Exactly. Oh, I've been plenty, as you say. Yeah. You were in mid-teens when you suddenly became focused on a career as a jockey, and you were fortunate enough to gain an apprenticeship with Fred Thomason at Nowra. Fred didn't train big numbers, did he? You'd call him a hobby trainer, I think, at the time. Exactly. Freddie had a job at driving a grader, of all things. He, he worked for a civil company, and um, mm. we used to get the work done before we went to work, and um, I did the same. I'd get, I'd be riding track before I went to school, so yeah. um, we had the same deal. If I was a bit late getting the last one work, well, he'd give me a lift to school, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it was a good combination. Fred trained you know, more than his share of winners for a, um, a small trainer, and, um, mm. yeah, it was very enjoyable. It was in a rural setup, too much similar to um, Turpentine Park, and um, it was a good start. You made it to the trials and you were as keen as mustard, but every time you got on the scales, the needle was pointing the wrong way. Exactly. You know, John, that happens to a lot of young riders and um, I, um, them days the limit was 45 and, you know, if you're going to claim free on that, you're going 48 and the limit, you know, mm, yeah. at 48 to claim free, you need to be 45 and, mm. you know, you're sitting on a, you know, you're sitting on a body on your wallet virtually mm. and, um, <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, I, I made a decision that I needed to establish myself financially then. Yeah. So, um, you know, I decided to go bricklaying and um, it was it was a good thing to work outside. It was a good thing. Had you ever laid a brick before in your life? No, no, not really, no. I was fortunate enough my, my eldest sister was married to a bricklayer mm. and I kicked off there and I used uh, – Ray was my base, Ray Pepper. Mm. And, um, yeah, it was, a, it was sort of a, a – if you were, if you're determined to work hard and you've got the the working ethic there, you can make a living out of a lot of things. You can be a concrete or bricklayer, what do you want? You just got to mm. be determined and and roll your sleeves up. Simple as that, John. Mm. When did you last produce a trowel? Oh, a while ago. I was still laying bricks for a little while, doing a few insurance jobs when I first started training. Yeah. But um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't laid a brick for a while, but I do pick up the trowel occasionally, but I don't lay bricks with it. <laughs> I've still got my trowel. I have it at work. It's it's a multi-purpose tool. Yeah, good on you. You acquired a trainer's license eventually, and you soon had a couple of ordinary horses in work. 
Now, you had to get them worked before reporting for duty on the building site, and this is where fate stepped in. You'd ride one and lead one down to the Berry Showground where the iconic horseman, Kevin Robinson, stabled some of his harness horses, and you hit it off pretty quickly with a man I like to call the maestro. Yeah, very, yeah, very good horseman, Kevin, and and um, trained lots of winners. Um, he knew both sides. He knew the galloping side and the harness side. And, um, a lot of charisma, which is I found in time is um, you can't, you know, you're not born with charisma. I mean, you're born with charisma. You're not, mm. you, know, you can't school yourself to be like that. But um, you can certainly, you know, when you approach people, approach them with a, a good day and a smile, and that's um, mm. that's pretty important. Yeah. I'm assuming you met your future wife, Patricia, at the Berry Showground. She was probably one of her dad's ground staff, was she? <laughs> no, she wasn't really. The, the Kevin owned a riding school and, and Patricia used to work there. And mm. We met on numerous occasions. I was good friends with her brothers, you know, through the racehorses. And, uh, mm. Yeah, and that's sort of how it started. Mm. Well, you and Patricia are the proud parents of Luke, Benjamin and Rachel who between them have given you a fairly sizable team of grandchildren. I think Luke's got half of them. <laughs> he has. He's a bit like Daniel Luke. He yeah. spat a few out. But um, they, oh, we've, got, we've got nine grandchildren. They're all gorgeous. We love them all. Mm. Kevin Robinson, Rob, uh, just to elaborate further on uh, his talents and his achievements for, for younger podcast listeners, let me simply say, there's been no better trainer of harness horses, and he later transitioned with great distinction to the thoroughbreds. I bet you asked that bloke a million questions. I did. I used to pick his brain every day, and uh, even I remember a day where he told me, or he suggested that I ask too many questions. So, uh, <laughs> but, you know, if you don't ask questions, you know, you're not going to find out. Mm. That's always been my motto. Like, even if you're working on a bit of machinery and you you don't yeah. know what you're talking about, if you can ring someone and ask a few questions, mm. you can sometimes save yourself a quid and also have that feeling of accomplishment at the same time. You're a very so. smart operator, Robert Brush. <laughs> Thank you very much for them. I've always <laughs> been like that. I don't mind. I, I've got no. There's no shame in asking a no. question. And, um, you get an answer as long as you keep it in your mind. And um, my daughter's very similar to me. Yeah. She can. Um, Ask a question, she remembers the instructions. Mm. Kevin Robinson is probably best remembered for his ability to condition a horse gradually. He, in fact, was sometimes known as the father of foundation. Lovely name and a lovely compliment. Oh, 100%, John. Like, he wouldn't start a horse unless it had three months under its belt. Mm. And there's a foundation on its own. You know, you see... Uh, well, you can see horses coming to work in different stables and at the races in six and eight weeks. But um, Kevin would always give them three months. Wouldn't matter if they were a baby or an older horse. That was that was his um, that was the line in the sand. Three mm. months in the book, and then you back you work your way back from it. And um, yeah, they're always pretty fit. Are pretty fit when they wound up when they go around first up. That's for sure. I bet he had a few owners champing at the bit. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Like we'd probably get, you'd give them two trials, but you know, on that seven mile beach, you, if you couldn't get a horse fit there, well, you, you'd never get a horse fit. No. Kevin's finest moment as a gallop strainer came in the autumn of '96 when he won the AJC Oaks with Ken Bell, a very, very fit filly. His former son in law was the jockey, Justin Sheehan. 
Yeah, and Anna used to ride nearly all Ken Bell's work, so it was mm. a combination of, of Justin and Anna there. And um, I, I can still remember that that filly when she came into the stables, a little dumpy, little fat, immature thing, mm. and matured into this um, more like a ballerina, you know, like a very fine bone, tall, mm. elegant type of, of filly. Um, yeah, just how they change. And, you know, it's stuck in my mind now when them sort of fillies come through the stable. Mm. You think, well, you know, she looks dumpy and small like a pony now, mm. but you can still remember the way she developed, you know. Yes. And, um, yeah, those sort of things stick in your mind, that's for sure. It's also well documented, Rob, that Kevin and his late wife Dawn were the parents of 12 kids, one of whom is your wife, Patricia. Yeah, that's correct, John. They were they had six – well, they actually had – um, Anna was, a, I think, a bit, a bit of an afterthought there. She came a bit later than the rest. <laughs> they had six boys and six girls, which has been well documented, and um, all beautiful people. Yes, our oh, great family. And your lovely sister-in-law, Anne-Marie, is currently a member of your team. She certainly is, and she's a, val- a very valued member of our team because um, she's patient with the animal, and, you know, she's there on time every day. Mm. Doing a- yeah, She does a great job. Mm. And a quick acknowledgement of your brother-in-law, Terry Robinson, an acclaimed horseman who has excelled in harness and thoroughbred racing. His nickname nowadays is the Highwayman, in recognition (laughs) of his amazing record in those tab highway races. He's won 25 or 26 of them. That's right, Johnny. When you talk about placement, he's certainly placed his horses extremely well. You know, and um, them sort of mediocre type country horses that might get through to class three. Well, why not do it in a highway? It's only an hour and a half up the road. So <laughs> yeah. um, no, he's placed him extremely well, and um, he, he had a real nice in Art, horse in Art Cadeau, won a Kosciuszko and a country championship. So um, yeah, yeah. he's had a little bit of luck, but you know, he's um, a very good trainer, Terry himself. Art Cadeau's the only horse so far to complete that double the country and the Kosciuszko, and what a double. 100%, that's right, 100%. How well do you remember the auspicious occasion of your first win as a trainer in your own right? It was a Kembla maiden with duo Bellissimo, and I'm sorry to tell you, it was in 1990. Yeah, I, I do. I remember it well. I, um, Craig Carmody rode him, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I think it was Craig Carmody. I just remember when he came back. I mean, before he jumped on, he said, gee, he looks like he's ready to go around in an Epson. He looks that well, he said to me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Drew Wide, um, you know, crossed easy, led all the way. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great day. And I've only, only held me licence for like three months. So mm. it was um, it was a good, quick result. Uh, obviously, you get sport when you you win a couple of races early in your career. You think it's how easy is this, but you soon, um, <laughs> you know, work out it's not that easy when you have a dry spell. You soon level out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Some time passed before your first city winner came along, horse called Phantom King at Warwick Farm, and lo and behold, he did it again two weeks later on the same track. Yeah, he was a he was a lovely old horse. We used to call him Potsy. He, just, he was like part of our backyard. We had him just out the backyard behind the clothesline, those two horses. And, uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, he was a very popular horse, and we used to try and lead on him because, you know, he's a bit of a one bad a horse and you go to the races and you draw wide and you struck your rider they go forward and then something else would kick up under you or mm. you know we just couldn't get it right then all of a sudden we just had this purple patch when he was like a six-year-old gelding where 
both times we went forward, both times we found that soft lead. And, um, yeah. yeah, and he didn't mind a wet track. And he was just a lovely horse to have around. He was, he was a horse that went from, you know, maiden class one, class two, right through every grade, country cup, yeah. one metrop, two metrop, then ended up going around in sort of those uh, sad day, yeah. you know, cup races and running nice thirds and fourths, but not quite good enough to win them. By golly, they're hard to find. Yeah, oh, yeah, they're hard to find them horses, yeah. You produce regular winners over the next few years, including Red Ivory and later two of her offspring, One Way Ticket and Ivory Pegasus. And then there was Belle Voyage, Keeping the Faith, Artificial and Costa Nothing. They were the horses to get you on their feet, especially Red Ivory. Wasn't she good to you? She was, like I paid $4,700 for her to scone yelling sale. I um I put five people into her when I got open the sales. Um, one of them was a, a gentleman called Bruce Thomas. He owned uh, it was a hotel here in Sydney. Mm. I raced her at Kemler Grain's first ever start. I gave her. She was like lucky to be fifteen hands, mm. but could really gallop this filly. And um, she come from last, ran fifth, and I think the owner's got two hundred dollars. And I remember Bruce ringing up and saying, "Look, if I'm going to be in a racehorse, I'm not mm. racing it there. The prize money's not worth it." Mm. So then I took her to Rose Hill, and I think I'm certain you called the race, mm-hmm. and she won a two-year-old race at Rose Hill, and you, you said, Struth, she's a pit pony. <laughs> I, I can remember that like it was yesterday. I meant it in the nicest way. You, you certainly did, but it was a, it, I think she was 100 to 1. <laughs> and if it would have been for uh, Mr. Thomas, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't have taken her to Rose Hill on Saturday. So sometimes them sort of rev-ups can, you know, bring you fortune without even knowing it. Yes, absolutely. Red Ivory, you'll never forget it. Rob, just stand by for a moment. We'll quickly clear a commitment on the podcast. When we'll come back, we'll talk about your boy Luke after this. Many Australian trainers have tried their horses on Pride's Racing Cube and have given the product a tick of approval. These small but powerful extruded cubes provide the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses finish their races off while promoting gut health. Racing Cube set recipe formulation means the same premium quality proteins and essential amino acids are used in every batch produced. Racing Cube's profile and digestibility allows you to feed approximately two to three kilos less per day than similar raw grain rations. It's salt-free to help reduce irritation if you've got a horse prone to stomach ulcers. Pride's Racing Cube is available in the popular 25 kilo bag, in bulk bags, or straight into the silo if you prefer, giving you quality equine nutrition at an economical price. Talk to your local rep about Racing Cube, another winner from the Pride's Easy Feed Stable. Trainers of thoroughbreds, standard breads, and performance horses are giving it the thumbs up all around the nation. Luke Price could ride anything from a very early age, although his height and frame didn't really lend themselves to a race-riding career, but he was desperate to be a jockey. You were training from Nowra Stables when you finally relented and signed him up. Yeah, that's correct, Johnny. Um, I used to take him to to work before school. Um, he'd ride a bit of work and... Um, he was determined to get on the racehorses. I, I, I made all my kids learn to ride on the pony bareback. It was something that I thought was, um, mm. you know, 
it puts them in good stead with their balance and whatever comes with riding, mm. a feel for the animal. Um, had a little, you know, a couple of setbacks on the way, broken arm. A kangaroo ran under his neck one morning on a, on a galloper and broke his arm. <laughs> yeah. We were late for school that day. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, always determined. I, I, um, I, even when he broke his neck, you know, like he wasn't, you know, his neurologist was – 100% certain he wouldn't ride a racehorse again, but yeah. I used to sneak out the beach in the morning with a group of horses and the other riders, and I'd come back and someone had already worked one there. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't have to think too hard to think it was. He was oh, sneaking no. on and riding one while I wasn't there. Incredible but, um, attitude, yeah. Oh, yeah, he just wanted to do it, you know, and he's, he's very conscientious trainer now and mm. takes the load for me because he does all the jockey bookings, he does all the programming, yeah. you know, it's – um. Yeah, certainly um, makes it a bit easier for me these days. Yeah, in the early days, he outrode his country claim very quickly, and he was going so well that it was you who suggested he should try a city stable, and you were very lucky to get him in with the late great Guy Walter. Yeah, Guy, Guy and Wendy were unreal. Like they took him in like he was, you know, one of their own, and. Um, and Guy doesn't mess with his words. If you're not doing something right, he soon tells you. Mm. That's the best way to teach anyone anything. And um, um, Luke was brought up that way too, that, you know, criticism's not a bad thing. It's it's a good thing, you know, if you can take something away from it. But he um, certainly done well there. And like, like I said before, Guy and Wendy really looked after him. Yeah. He was, um, yeah, he, he was. Um, he certainly learned a lot. Like I said to him when he went there, I said, mate, you'll keep your eyes and your ears open because you're not going to be a jockey forever. And he did that, and he's brought that back with him. And we use a few, quite a few of um, of guys' techniques training these horses, especially the horses to get over a bit of a trip. Mm. Oh, yeah. None better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Luke, the accident you're talking about, the C2 fracture, uh, yeah. was the result of a race fall at Warwick Farm in 2002. It was a case of just landing badly. You tell me his dedication to rehab was almost obsessive. He was back within 12 months and he got to the races pretty quickly. But by then, Rob, the opportunities were scarce. He did ride another 35 odd winners, but he was killing himself in the sweat box for two or three ordinary rides a week. Wasn't worth it. No, it wasn't. I, I remember one day he was going to. Gosford, I think it was, and he rang me up and he said, look, because he's never, ever, never, ever applied to ride overweight, had never, ever applied, which is something, you know, in its mm. own, in his cap on its own. But, um, you know, he said, I, I've had no breakfast. I never had tea last night. I'm dying for a drink of water. Mm. You know, uh, I don't know where it goes from here. And I said, mate, he can always give, away, give it away. Yeah. Or he can always lift your weight. But he would never, he's determined never to lift his, his limit weight. Mm. But um, no, done a great job. We got to give it to him. He was very determined. Mm. He became your stable foreman in 2004, and a few years later, of course, he took out his own licence. When and how did the partnership materialise? Oh, well, we're sort of training together, even though, like, he wasn't there, I was training his horses a bit. If I wasn't there, he trained my horses. So we're already together, already together, you know, in that sort of way. And I just said to him one day, well, you know, this is silly, really. You know, let's just form a partnership and um, be done with it, you know, because um, it was a popular thing. I think it was another good way to promote ourselves. Mm. 
At the time, I thought it was a really good way to promote ourselves because Luke was still popular as a jockey, even though he had retired, but people still had it, you know, memories of it. And um, we, It certainly was a great way to promote ourselves because we we got horses out of it and, and not just horses but nice horses out of it. So it was a, it was a great thing. And I, even moving to Kemble was a great thing for promoting ourselves. It was just mm-hmm. people like to see you progressing and, and and as a person, I like to think I'm progressing as well. Mm. I, I don't think we'd ever move to the metropolitan area, but I think Kemble is a good, happy medium yeah. for getting a nice horse, and it's proven that. Oh, yeah, time and time again. Many people wonder how these training partnerships actually work. Is it a case of uh, discussion, swapping opinions, offering suggestions, You'd need to reach consensus on every horse, wouldn't you? You want you wouldn't want to be at loggerheads. Yeah, no, we very rarely. At early days, we used to log ahead a bit. We don't. I sort of let him win most battles. You know, if I've really got a problem, he's he's pretty um, efficient horse trainer now. Mm. He probably doesn't need me, but he he certainly grabs me when he wants. I'm I'm pretty good with soundness issues. Yeah, as you know, practice makes perfect. But I always, you know, if I think we need to get a vet, we'll always recommend the vet. But um, he'll get me with anything, you know, to look anything thoroughly before the vet comes. Mm. Um, You know. We're, we are a pretty good combination, really. Yeah. I just do what I'm told, John. It's pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's a case of second opinion. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. it, it works pretty good. And look, one thing about the both of us, look, one thing I always agree with him, he aims to the stars, and I think that's a great thing. Yeah. You know, if you're conservative in our game, you can waste a horse. Like yeah. we, t- spoke, we touched on Red Ivory before, like mm. I'd love to have her now. Like mm. some of the things I used to do, I think, wow. Like, she was a really good mare, and I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. Really? Yeah. You know, she could sprint and stay. She mm. made the field in the Melbourne Cup, mm. you know, like, and she won a maiden over 1,100 or something. So, mm. anyway. Now, you can't keep Luke off him, can you? He he still enjoys riding a little bit of work. One of his favourites is old Cuban Royale. That's for sure. He rode him this morning, actually. Mm. He um, dives on him much as he can. He's a He's a... He's an old bugger. He can get sturdy on the way home from the track, and he can. And not many geldings do, but he's always had a bit of a tie-up. Mm. Um, it must come from the old brood mare, but everything out of that mare, they send a tie-up. You can sort of associate that with fillies and mares, but old Cuban Royal, he can tie-up. He just gets himself that well. And, you know, you, it's he, he's an easy horse to ride, but he's tricky to bring home from the track. Mm. Rob, for so those of our listeners who are not au fait with the expression tie-up, it's probably better known as acidosis, and it can cause an awful muscle spasm. It's a horrible thing to watch. Oh, it is for sure, John. Like, um, I always equate it to people that aren't, you know, in the know of it. It's like you jump on a push bike and you've been in a push bike for 12 months and you ride up a hill. Hmm. You know, your calf muscles still tell, <laughs> soon tell you what acidosis is. Yes. Yeah, no, good example. Let's pay tribute to the Bonnie Mare Jamia with whom the Price has won three races and placed in several black-type events. Two of her wins were the Furious and the Percy Sykes Stakes, both Group 2s. Nice to have in the trophy cabinet. Oh, 100%, John. Like she, her, her um, career was thwarted by, you know, those extremely heavy tracks that we um, we incurred for 18 months there, and certainly um, she'd have been better than that. But when you're a three-year-old filly and you start winning those group twos, they all come with set weights and penalties. 
And, you know, by the time you get to the third one, you've got to step away, set away some penalties. Like to use it only a little mare, mm. although a strong mare. But, you know, you, you're given horses that you've beaten, you know, anything up to five kilos by the time you get to that third group too. So that's sort of caught up with that. But then we wanted to, elected to go open company sprint races like Sydney Stakes and, and Golden Roses and those sort of ways. And um, all of a sudden she was just off the Colts. And then we had the wet track, so she was she was certainly uh, never got a, a real chance to show her true colours. No. Although those those wins that you spoke of, the Furious and the Percy Sykes, were exciting. I'll never forget a first start in a race. It was a four horse field at Kembla. She was green. She was all over the place in the straight, but she beat Fox Fighter and Festival Dancer, two nice horses, and both subsequent city winners. Oh, exactly. Well, there's an uh, example of Luke and I. Like, I wanted a trial of that that week, and Luke wanted to race, and, and the knobs were quite big. Now, don't worry, Dad. They'll fall away. They always do, and they did. And they fell, went up in a four-horse field. So, mm-hmm. you know, he was right there. And, um, yeah, we went from there into the long row plate where she was probably a little bit unlucky, uh, ran second, ridden off speed a little, you know, and that's how she liked That was her racing pattern. She decided that was her. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, she was certainly – she's a very, very, very fast filly, isn't it, that about her? Jamia gave her owners a hell of a ride. She won $1.25 million. She made over a million dollars – on the English digital sale recently when she was snapped up by the seemingly inexhaustible reserves of Yulong Investments. Mr Zhang loves a mare with a bit of black type, doesn't he? He certainly does. Well, he's he's doing it right. He's buying the right sort of mares that are going to, you know, produce uh, horses, that commercial horses are going to go through better sales like, um, you know, your English Easter sale and your, your Magic Me in sale, those sort of, they're the sort of sales where the big money comes. So he's doing it right. And now to the horse who put you on the big stage. How did Count de Rupee come into your life? Oh, look, honestly, I picked him out at a Magic Millions sale. He was just my sort of horse. You know, he was very athletic. Mm. He was only lightly framed. He was my sort of horse that I'd like to train. Because them, them sort of horses to me is you don't have to work them hard. When you look at them, when you look at the, the blank canvas, you think, well, I'd have to work them hard. And most of your, you know, soft tissue injuries or your breakdowns happen when you've got to work them harder to get the weight off to have them fit enough to race. So mm. he was my sort of horse. And it was an, a bloody hot day that day at um, at Magic's, as it can be in the Gold Coast. And mm. the boys had had enough. They wanted to go back to the casino and have a beer. And I said, we've got to hang my four more lots. We'll see this fella come through. Mm. Well, I think we had 80000 to throw at him and um, I just sat by my one of my best mates, Bruce Noble, and um, I just kept whacking him under the arm and asked him to go five and another five. And, <laughs> and it was very fortunate we were able to purchase him for 145000 mm. and the rest is probably history there. But um, he showed us good natural ability from day one, that horse. He was, um, I don't think I've ever seen a horse trial as good as he – or in an, un, in an unofficial jump out at Kemble one day, I think I've ever seen a horse trial yeah. as good as him, you know. No, surprisingly, he got beaten at his first two starts. Exactly, exactly. I remember I, I remember when he won his maiden, um, we drew awkward, and he was sort of still learning his, his trade, the horse, and um, – I said, Mitchell Bell was worried about the gate. I said, mate, don't worry if you do, just keep him comfortable. Just mm. keep him comfortable, keep him happy. You know, sing to him or whatever you want to do to him. But I think he sat three deep the trip and he won easy, you know. He was um, 
he's certainly a lovely horse. It was a, it was you know, it was an absolute travesty when we lost him, and oh, it was yeah. a, it was like losing a family member because he's there in stable one, like the good ones are. And yeah, yeah, it certainly changed everyone in the stable. Like it was um, brought us all back to earth. He'd won five before contesting the Silver Eagle at Randwick in October 2021. It was obvious he was a nice horse. It was obvious he had a good turn of foot. He ran third to aim in that Silver Eagle, and he went into the Golden Eagle as an $18 chance. By crikey, your heart must have been jumping out of your chest at the 200-metre mark. I certainly did. I went the early crow that day, but, you know, you take a step back to the Silver Eagle. There was a horse broke down in that race, and he was turned sideways. And um, it's amazing that he never got hurt that day and done an amazing job to get back, you know, in a balanced situation where, he, you know, he flew home and, you know, run that third to, to qualify for the Golden Eagle. But, mm. um, you know, like you see the winner there, he had the he had the advantage of having the one run over the mile beforehand and it's such a valuable asset to have in your, in your um, quiver in regards to having that one go, I call it the geography, like one go over a mile compared yeah. to a horse that never had a go over the mile. Mm. And we sort of got exposed a bit early there on Golden Eagle Day because um, the horse that I thought would cart us in the race a bit further dropped off and mm. he was sort of left to sit in dark and um, it was still pretty good. 1.5 million to run seconds, you know, better than oh. a poke in the eye with a blunt stick, yeah. I'm thunderstruck was the horse to run him down in the last 50 metres and Rob, how bizarre it is to think that both of those great horses have passed on. Count the rupee and I'm Thunderstruck died after a knee operation in the vet surgery in Melbourne. Yeah, 100%. Like, I don't, yeah, you just don't know when you've got them. And if they're well, that's like I said before about pick, aiming for the stars. Like, if they're good enough and they're going good enough and, you, and you're happy with them in your heart, why not give them a go? Because, you know, they get, yeah, one minute you got them and one minute you haven't. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. You you can't, you know, you can't have regrets. Two weeks after the Golden Eagle, you experience the enormous thrill of winning a million-dollar race on your home track. Counter-Rupee at Kembla was ridden a magnificent race by your former apprentice, Brock Ryan, to win the gong. That young bloke was under a hell of a lot of pressure that day, Rob. Um exemplified by a bad barrier drawer, but he was calm, cool and composed, wasn't he? He was. He knew the horse, John, and he's got good gait speed. He's always had good gait speed and um, that helped. That gets you out a lot of trouble, good gait speed, in having that tactical speed. Um, but in saying that, Brocky's, you know, he's a better rider than a lot of people think of him. You know, I reckon he's a top ten rider in in our state. Mm. Um it, he had to just work out in his own mind to follow his intuition. And now that he does that, he rides the horse. He doesn't, you know, ride the instruction and mm. it makes a difference. That's what separates the men's from the boys. And he's worked that out and, hell, he's riding good since he's come back from his shoulder reconstruction as well. And yeah. I'll, I'll have him on everything if I could, you know, but unfortunately you can't do that. You've got to, mm. you know, appease owners as well. Yeah. But um, he was certainly good for Count de Rupe and he knew the horse so well. You know, if things weren't panning out, he'd look after him as well too. So that's important mm. that you've got a rider that's going to look after your horse as well. You took Count de Rupe to Melbourne for the new market and he was ineffective down the straight six. But I'll tell you what, he's not the first Sydney horse to get lost 
down that Flemington straight. Yeah, that's for sure, John. It can happen to them. I was a little bit dubious going that way. We ran into quite a firm track, but in saying that, the fence was gold and no one sort of uh, thought that was the case. And the biggest majority of the horses went to the outside that particular day and left the small group there on the fence who was probably worth three lengths, John. But um, mm. we're. We were following um, people like Hugh Bowman and James McDonald, so we yeah. thought we were in the right class there, but we're, obviously we weren't. But yeah. them straight races, you've got to be careful for buy sometimes. Mm. In August 2022, Count de Rupee was coming up beautifully for his spring campaign. He contested one of those fortnightly jump-outs at Kembla with Tommy Berry replacing Brock, who was out injured. He got the staggers towards the finish of the gallop. He wandered off the track and he actually slammed into the outside fence. Now, by the time help was on the scene, he'd passed away. Tommy Berry escaped unhurt. You and Patricia were having one of those rare weeks off at Noosa Hedge. That's and correct. Luke called you, didn't he, with the tragic news? He did. He, he called me as soon as it happened. He said, um, Jimmy just dropped dead, yeah. and that was his stable name. Yeah. yeah. So it didn't really do our holiday much good, that's for sure, John. Oh, God, no. Put a real dampener on it. Hey, Rob, isn't it an unwritten law in racing that luck ebbs and flows? Just a few days later, a few days later, you won a midway at Rose Hill with a horse called Noble Soldier which helped ease the pain, at least for a time. Oh, exactly. And he, he's been a great horse to the stable, although he's a funny character. He um, Some days he knows you, some days he doesn't. Mm. But um, he's a brother to Noble Joey, who we ha enjoyed a lot of success with too. And mm. the horse is just bred in the backyard, homebreds. And um, yeah, he's just – I only picked him up yesterday, actually, Noble Soldier. He's just had 10 months off with a pelvis injury. So mm. hopefully we can get him back to his best. Um yeah, he's a good horse to have in the stable, and I, 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 I won their last preparations, sat three and four deep the trip, Hugh Bowman with big weight, yeah. and it was a very impressive win. So he's a nice horse himself. You tell me, Count de Rupee lifted the profile of the stable overnight. New owners offered your horses, and there was an influx of yearlings. You went from ten or twelve yearlings the previous year to over thirty. That's right. We had thirty-two two-year-olds, and then, them, them three-year-olds, uh, they're now three-year-olds, and they're coming through the system. We never really found a two-year-old out of them, but like the late Colin Hayes used to say, for every one hundred yearlings you have, you might have one two-year-old. So, we didn't turn over those sort of numbers, but we nominate we nominated twenty-two horses for a golden slipper. Never got any of them there, and they. That nomination obviously rolls into the golden rose, and we never had none of them there. So, oh, we um. When saying that, like we said before, we aim high. If they're if they're right to go around, they go around. Yeah. But um, you know, those horses we've been patient with are, are just about to start winning some races. I'd say. Hey, back to Cuban Royale, the old boy. He's going strong at nine. He's getting on towards seventy starts, ten wins, and sixteen placings. Um, he's obviously more than just a big eater, Rob. You tell me, he is gluttonous. Oh, yeah. You know, you look at him. He looks like he puts weight on in work when you look at him come back in after track. We said to Brocky the other morning when he came in the gate, I said, holy dooly, this horse looks fat. Yeah. <laughs> but he's he's got, you know, he's got a dapple on every inch of his body. Mm. He's big and shiny and well, like, um, 
you know, the big positives about being big, big eaters, that's for sure, you know. Yeah. Uh, the downside of that is you've got to work them a bit harder. But um, he's um, he's been a lovely, sound racehorse for the stable, quirky as it may be over time. Yeah. But um, he goes around in a, another million-dollar race on Saturday, so drawn mm. a bit awkward in 16. But, um, yeah, fingers crossed, just need a bit of luck. He's a funny old horse in a race, isn't he? It, it seems you've got to leave him alone early. He's got to come into it when he's good and ready. 100%. Early days we used to make him go forward and put him in a position, but the thing about that is when we decided to ride him a couple of lengths quieter, we started winning better races. Mm. So the adage to the whole story was the fact that, you know, you let him slip back a couple of extra lengths and let him come off the bridle and flop along behind him. Mm. He's, his back end of him is as good as any sort of group three, group two horse. Yeah, his Carrington Stakes win was a ripper. Robert Randwick, he came from last. Brock rode him a super race. He, he resisted the temptation to come to the outside. He went up the middle, had a bit of luck, admittedly, but it yeah. was just a perfect ride and one of his best wins. Oh, 100%. It was good to see that. It was good. to The horse deserved it and the rider deserved it. Like I say, it was a very good ride. Mm. Um, yeah, like he was a horse that was ready to win a race like that and you could probably earmark that Carrington Stakes each year if you've got a nice open company animal because with all these pop-up races these days, um, yeah. people have other um, goals in sight and it's mm. a nice little listed race you can pick up without, you know, busting your gut sort of thing. The Australian bloodstock colours have become very recognisable all over Australia, largely due to two Melbourne Cup wins, Protectionist and Gold Trip. Now, Australian bloodstock use several trainers, including Robin Luke Price. You've got a brave smash two-year-old gelding in the place and you got him under unusual circumstances. Yeah, uh, Jamie Lovett himself bred the horse and... Um I didn't know that, but we purchased the horse through a Magic Me and Geeling sale. We paid 180000 for him. And then after the sale, uh, I ran into Jamie and he told me the story how he purchased the broodmare through a Woodlands, the old Woodlands farm there of the Ingham Brothers. And, you know, notoriously they have some outstanding mares and, and you know, Godolphin and Dali have proven that time and time again with those mares they've bought when they bought the whole stock and barrel sort of thing. But, um yeah, he suggested that he'd be interested in buying back in and subsequently has taken a leg in the horse and syndicated it to the Australian Bloodstock and we'll have our first horse um, with their colours on at the races as trainers like and I, yeah. Yeah, when do we see him? Oh, well, he's um, he's in work at the moment. Um, he's coming along fine. He had a jump out on Monday this week. Yep. Down the back straight, they're letting us pop a few out the back straight at the moment on the course proper while they're um, mm. doing the renovations. So we'll we'll need to officially trial him, but um, his mm. his race name is Smashing Time, and um, yeah, nice horse, nice big, strong, brave smash. Yeah. what's his name, Rob? Smashing Smashing Time. Smashing Time. Smashing Time. Yeah, good. I've jotted him down. You've got two I Am Invincible fillies in the place, with whom you've been very very patient. What can you tell us about Monty Kate and Monty Supreme? Right, both these horses are owned by um, Vic and Yvonne Bates. They um, spent a little bit of money and they bought these fillies. Um, both needed time. They're both like big, strong, you know, 550-kilo three-year-old fillies. So, you know, they were never going to be two-year-olds. But we've done plenty with them. 
you know, we've taken them as far as we can on, you know, on each preparation. Uh, both have trialled officially. I thought the grey filly out of um, ooh, is it Arabian gold yeah. um, is my pick of the two fillies, but, you know, mm. you never know, you know. You don't go looking into the crystal ball because horses change when they go to the races, but mm. both very, very big, strong fillies, and I'm hoping that one of them turns out for the sake of Dick and, and Yvonne. Your stable colours have become very well known, Rob, the white Tartan Maltese cross armbands and a white cap. I notice some of your stable clients have had uh, golf caps and ties uh, made up in the Royal Stewart Tartan. And by crikey, they were conspicuous after some of those wins by Count de Rupee and Jamia. Certainly, that's the big 5 O syndicate, a lovely group of gentlemen. And um, They've been they've been very lucky in our stable. They were the first two horses they had shares in. So come into our stable, and the first two horses they brought in were a County Rupee and Jamea. So very lucky group of gentlemen. Um, and they've brought back into a couple more of our two-year-olds last year, which are three-year-olds now. And, um, yeah, it's all going well. And then their wives have brought into a, a filly as well, which won at Hawkesbury last meeting. So they're, they're lucky owners. It's good to have lucky owners on board. It's been a great journey, Rob, and uh, you've more than made your mark in a very competitive market. Congratulations on all you've done. And Thank thanks you very for, much, John. Thanks for sharing the story with us on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Thanks, John. Much appreciated. There have been only six editions of the Everest, but the trivia buffs are already compiling records. For instance, Yes, Yes, Yes is the only end tyre to win so far. A total of 15 spots have been filled by mares, with not a single place-getter among them. Tulip and Hort Brion Her have been the best of the female performers, both finishing fifth in their respective years. Four mares ran in the first Everest, while three contested two later editions. Peter Snowden and Chris Waller share training honours with two wins each, while Karen McAvoy dominates the jockeys. Not only has he ridden three of the six Everest winners, he's also the only jockey to have ridden in every one of them. Brenton Avdulla, Hugh Bowman and Tim Clark have been around in five. James McDonald, Tommy Berry and Nashra Willer in four each. Rachel King, who's been unplaced twice, is the only female jockey to ride in the race. Amazingly, Damien Oliver has had only one Everest ride. The great Ty Anglin rode in the first two editions, finishing second on Trapeze Artist in 2018. Several horses competed more than once. Nature Strip is the top scorer with four attempts. Redzell, Santa Ana Lane, Trekking and Eduardo had three cracks at the big race, while Brave Smash, Gitra and In Her Time competed twice. Three of the six Everests have been run on rain-affected tracks. Yes, 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 got a good three in 2019 and established a race and track record of 17.32. Only two overseas horses have arrived on the eve of the race. US Navy flag and 10 sovereigns from the O'Brien yard and both finish well back. The youngest trainer to win the Everest is Clayton Douglas, who was just 27 when Giga Kick was successful last year year, the oldest is Les Bridge, who was 83 when Classic Legend won in 2020. That's a heck of a lot of trivia after just six years. How will it be in another six?